You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. I'm Avery Smith, and I'm here to invite you to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Whatever your own relationship to gender and spirituality may be, you will find yourself enriched by the stories shared by my guests, who so far have ranged in religion from Christian and pagan to Jewish, Sikh, atheist, and beyond, and have hailed from the U.S., Chile, Poland, Australia, and more. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts, or read along with episode transcripts by visiting blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. See you there. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before we start this episode, as always, I have to thank my patrons. This week, I have to thank Paul and Rabbit Waller. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this without them. I believe in bringing these long, interesting conversations to you for free. But in order to do that, I need some help. A little bit goes a long way and makes this show sustainable. So to join my patrons number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar, five dollars, three dollars a month, you get extra content every week. Access to my show, House of Heretics, with the former minister from the Salvation Army, Timothy McPherson. We talk about religion, controversies, culture, film, all kinds of stuff. And it helps support my show. Also, one of the best ways to support this show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts that tells our digital overlords that my show is worth sharing with others. So I'm going to read a recent review. This is from Night Jock from Great Britain. And they say, I recently came across this podcast when looking for Lucian Greaves interviews, and I have never resonated more with someone's journey and beliefs around LGBTQIA plus experiences mental health, and personal belief systems. I'm currently working through the archives of shows and look forward to upcoming ones. Thank you. It's a very sweet review. And please, if you have a moment, just five minutes, go leave a positive review on iTunes. It really, really helps my show get discovered by new listeners. And finally, this show is sponsored by thesatanictemple.tv. If you are into weird new religious movements, occult rituals, live streams, conversations, there's all kinds of fascinating stuff going on at thesatanictemple.tv. And you can use my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout to get one month free. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Shiva Honey back to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So this is your third time on the show, and uh, I just absolutely fucking love you. You're wonderful, and it's been way too long since we've talked. 
Well, back at you. Yeah. I'm always telling people, like, check Steven out. He does such great work. Um, I just feel like, you know, speaking of the podcast, the topics that you cover, your blogs, everything, and they're, they're so on point and insightful and interesting. And I really appreciate what you do. So thank well, you. That's very sweet. I, I uh, think the exact same thing about what you do. So for people whom, for whom this might be their first exposure to you, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I am a member of the Satanic Temple. I've been part of the group since 2014. I was one of the founding members um, of the Detroit chapter, which was the first chapter of the organization. Um, so uh, after you know getting involved, I became a member of the International Council. So I've been a sort of been a kind of leadership position. Uh, I was in a leadership position for a while in TST, and then that shifted into starting to do uh, rituals. Uh, I was for a while working on administrative and organizational stuff. And then, you know, after a couple of years of that, got really into this idea of exploring ritual within this non-theistic satanic context. So I, by that time, I had been practicing ritual in private quite a bit, um, specifically as a way for me to deal with PTSD, anxiety, uh, kind of being lost after I got out of a couple of bad relationships and did some processing around my religious upbringing. Uh, and it had really helped me center myself, focus on my goals, work on, you know, disconnect from things that weren't serving me anymore. And finally, I think around 2018, I began, uh, I was asked by the Satanic Temple to to do a black mass and perform on baptisms at the temple. So I started doing that publicly. Uh, then last year, I released a book about my experience with ritual uh, that basically exists to talk about the benefits that it can have with people, even if, you know, even if you aren't religious, and how to form your own uh, ritual practice, give some examples of what I've done and, and what we've done with TST. And that's just kind of been my focus for the last couple of years. So I released that book last year. I released uh, a deck, uh, The Devil's Deck, which is a satanic ritual deck, I call it, kind of the first of its kind. And most recently, I've been focusing on uh, death sort of within that, that still that, that big circle of ritual. Um, but specifically, since I released the book, I have been getting a lot of feedback from people about, you know, asking about what they can do about grief, any sort of rituals that could be done uh, around death. And I, I had a couple of resources, but I really found myself wanting. So I really dug deep into that, that um, this concept, uh, how we can approach death in our work as Satanists, and I've been spending the last year really focused on on that subject, and so I'm working right now on finishing up this book, um, The Devil's Death, Your Satanic Companion to Grief and Dying, which is about that experience and, and talks about how we as non-theistic Satanists or people who are secular or people who are just looking for something outside of what we have traditionally in our culture, how we can approach grief, how we can deal with the loss of those close to us, what, uh, you know, sort of practically what we should be thinking about uh, while we're still alive to preserve our memory and to help people around us, uh, rituals we can use uh, for death and grief and all this other stuff. So with COVID and the loss that we're all feeling, this just seemed like a topic that I really wanted to dig into. And luckily, I've been able to put some time aside to to really investigate and, you know, try to try to come to an understanding of how we can do this in a way that really fits our values and beliefs and is healthy for us, you know? Mm. 
Yeah, it's kind of the perfect moment for it as well with the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, I've noticed this interesting thing with me lately where it's, you know, maybe it's because I'm I'm no longer in my 20s and suddenly it's like, oh, shit, I'm going to die someday. <laughs> but I, I will just find myself like reading in the living room at night and the thought just goes through my head. Oh, I'm going to die someday. Mm-hmm. And what do I do with that fact? You know, as as a non-theist, as, as someone who does not believe in God, and I think it is most likely that nothing happens when I die. But I'm mm-hmm. I'm agnostic on that point, but I, I lean towards nothing happens when I die. So, you know, as, as non-theists who don't have the reassurance of an afterlife, I've been finding myself thinking about death more and more lately, I would say on a near daily basis. And it isn't a, a dour thing, right? Like it isn't a, a morbid thought. It's just a fact. It's just a part of my life now thinking about death not not necessarily in a negative way yeah yeah you were going i i heard an open yeah, parentheses I, <laughs> yeah no, i feel the same way i think you know this i think since i became a satanist and when i separated from i was a, i was raised christian very conservative we've, we've talked about this in past episodes but when i separated from that it i wouldn't say it left a void necessarily but there was like you know a certain a certain I mean, there was obviously a belief system that I held at one point, right? And that was gone. So it's mm. like, well, what do I like? What do I focus on as a as a person who's trying to be a good person? What do I focus on? Also, as somebody who knows that they're going to die, and this is, you know, I grew up with the, this belief that the best comes after you die. <laughs> so switching that on its head and being like, well, yes. okay, now, now I don't think anything. Like you, I like what you said, feeling agnostic to exactly what happens after, but leaning toward nothing. It's like, well, what do I do with that information now? And the answer that I came to. And especially through doing the ritual work and focusing on, for the first time in my life, what I wanted, it was like, well, how do I build a life that really feels like I'm living to my full potential? And that's kind of been my satanic journey, I feel like, um, and the question that I've been working on answering since I became a Satanist. But, yeah, it's like that's become such a present question. And I think with the pandemic, like you were saying, too, it's like we see this with the job resignations that are have happening, with people shifting you know, their lives completely around now, that we the, this bubble around everything being okay and going that life is going to keep on going forever and i think a lot of that's been destroyed for people over the last year because of the loss and tragedy that has come with um, the covid pandemic and so now people are like all right well especially i think our generation um mm. <laughs> like what what can i do now to make the most out of what I've, the time i do have here and um yeah and that's a brave question to ask and i think it's something that we weren't really prepared to answer growing up i think the way that we did (laughs) you know absolutely because you know this is something that i've thought a lot about how when i first started to give up my faith hello kitty meow yeah Um, yeah, we're surrounded by cats right hey me too i you know i've (laughs) satanists and our cats there, yeah. we have so many, and every single like Zoom meeting that I have with with Satanists, there are so many cats. It's kind of wonderful. Um, it is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you know, something that I've been thinking about quite a bit is when my faith started to die. You know, when I when I started to to lose my Christian faith, I realized I I don't think I realized until years later how big 
of a grieving process that was because Mm -hmm. essentially what I was doing was grieving for eternity, Mm -hmm. grieving for the loss of an afterlife, grieving for the loss of an eternal afterlife. That's a huge, unspeakably huge leap to go from I'm going to live forever to no, I'm going to live for, if I'm lucky, 80 plus years, 70 plus years, right? That is an unspeakably, literally, infinitely huge leap, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and yet how there, there, so there comes the challenge of how do we deal with that? But also, how can we still integrate wisdom and ritual into the reality of death, right? Like mm-hmm. we, because so much of the ritual surrounding death has to do with that eternal life, has to do mm-hmm. with a pass. It's almost like a rite of passage from this life to the next. And so much of so much of the ritual that our culture is handed. To us, you know, so much, so much of the ritual that our culture has handed to us is like that rite of passage. So it sounds Mm -hmm. like the kind of ritual that you're coming up with is how do we confront our mortality in a way that is positive and empowering, um, but not a rite of passage. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense? Yeah, totally. No, no, no. You are. Um, Yeah, and in the book, and the ritual section for the book is going to be huge. I think we're already at like 50 pages for it, but like, mm. yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big part of it. I, the ritual, I know that I've been working on the ritual that I've been working on for this book. A lot of it is about grief, which is, I think something that presents us, uh, we're presented with like on a daily basis, really, but there's ways that we can use ritual to focus our grief, to let go of it, to use it to understand more about ourselves. Um, but, but then the other part is what you were saying, you know, um, and I was just having a conversation with a friend about this recently, but it's, you know, coming up with ceremony and ritual, which we know is from a scientific perspective, helpful, very helpful with people for people dealing with grief that doesn't necessarily have to rely on tradition or superstition or, you know, that works for us, which is, I think, something that previous generations just didn't think about maybe as much as we are thinking about this now, but like, um, I think there's just this expectation that when somebody dies, we have to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z has to happen. We have to have this sort of ceremony. We have to do this with their bodies or we have to do this with our bodies. And it just, I think, as Satanists especially, you know, we can wake up to the reality that that just doesn't apply to us. And there's so many other ways to approach death from a ritualistic perspective that can fit fit our values and fit what, what our needs are. Um, and don't, don't rely on, you know, these traditional, these traditional just uh, ways that people have dealt with this in the past. So it's like a really interesting, I think it's something really interesting to explore. And that with the book, like I'm really inviting people to think about, because it can be, you know, I think the way that we confront death as a whole, as a society, and I guess from my perspective, I'm talking about from like, you know, American society, Western society is not so healthy, you know, we we live in a, a world that's, you know, run by capitalism and white supremacy, and we don't we don't offer much space to grieve all mm. the things that we're suffering with on a daily basis, the trials and tribulations that people have gone through, not to mention death. It's just something that we're supposed to put on the back burner. I actually saw some tweets recently about somebody, it was a, 
a conversation between a person and their boss saying that, you know, I'm taking tomorrow off because my, my uncle died or something. And, and the boss is telling them, no, you have to actually just go to work. You know, my, you know, my cousin died two mm. weeks ago and I didn't take any time off, so you can't. And just this, just this idea that, um, you know, we have to grieve and we have to confront death in this very, very limited context. I don't think we have to do that anymore. If, and I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we really need to start thinking about other ways to integrate grief and death into our lives in a way that, you know, honors, honors us and the people around us. How much of that also just has to do with the fact that we're so underexposed to death? You know, mm, the yeah, fact absolutely. that like the fact the fact is the reality is death is everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. it it's everywhere, but it's invisible. You know, mm-hmm. in every family, someone's dying and, you know, it, it's it's everywhere. And and but we kind of shut it away. We we put it away in old folks homes. We ghettoize death. Mm-hmm. And. There's and and we're just very very resistant to thinking about it. So then, when we are confronted with grief, when we when we you know when our cousin does die and we do have to take time off work, then the the end result is we we have a world, we have a structure, a culture that just cannot handle it, like just cannot mm-hmm. deal with the reality of death at all. Same with mental health, same with, you know, just mm-hmm. all of these things that we don't have the bandwidth for culturally. Mm-hmm. What got... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what, what started this project for you? Like, what, what made you... Was there a catalyzing event or was it just something that was brewing? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, uh, actually, like, what, how this all started up. So I have a friend who has actually helped is co-writing the book with me, uh, Betty, and she is a PhD biologist. Oh, oh say a, that one more time. Your your audio just got a bit oh, muffled. Yeah, sorry. I said she's a, a PhD biologist, mm. and she's also a Satanist. And she was diagnosed a few years ago with incurable disease. So she started, you know, she doesn't know how much time she's going to have. And she reached out to me because she knew the work that I did and was like, you know, can you help me um, work on my end of life plan? And can you help me work on, you know, funeral and ritual aspects of that as well? And I think that was like, that was actually just before COVID started in 2020. So that was like mm. February. So I started talking to her about this and we started going back and forth because she writes and everything. And she has, a, you know, a great wealth of information. At, and she's helped, she's helped edit my other book, actually, and uh, The Devil's Tone. So we were going back and forth and... We came up, you know, we initially kind of played around with this idea, like maybe that's something we can write about. I don't, I'm not sure if we conceptualized it as an entire book at that point, but then COVID happened and, um, you know, we kept on talking about it and I kept on getting messages from people that had read The Devil's Tome that, um, you know, I have a couple of rituals that can be used for grief and, and death in that book, but it just, people just kept on asking and asking and asking. So I started thinking about doing more on that. So it kind of continued throughout 2020. And then I had a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, die at the end of 2020. And I really didn't know. I think for the first time in my life, I actually had a little bit of space to grieve um, a death, which I don't think I'd, I'd had before. Uh, it seemed Everything seemed very surreal to me previously, and that one just hit me really hard. And I didn't know what I was supposed to say or how to deal with it or how to support, you know, their family. And that, you know, so in the midst of this conceptualization of the book, 
I decided that I would also um, I would become a death doula. So um, and that death doula is somebody who it's you know I think throughout the world there have been people who've served those roles, but in the context of the West, I think it's a relatively new phenomenon. And the death doula, like the birth doula, is somebody who typically um, who companions a person or their families or both through the dying process. And it, the sort of the jobs they can do can range from you know emotional support to practical planning to you know a leading a ceremony or ritual for the family to you know day-to-day kind of hospice work. Um, it really kind of it's a large spectrum of what you can do as a death doula. But I really wanted to to um, do a program like that so I could understand better from that perspective, you know, what options there are for people, um, what the best, what research is saying, the best, you know, the best research is saying about death and grief, how to deal with it, like what the common human experience is, what's helpful to people, what's not helpful, legally and practically, you know, what can be done. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we started writing the book in 2020, but it really got steamrolling earlier in uh, 2021. And um, yeah, it just, it just picked up speed. Uh, throughout this past year but it just it seemed like after the devil's tome the thing that people wanted the most Hmm. were more more rituals and more discussion about death and i think it's just like the devil's tome and pretty much everything i i create it's it came from my own need (laughs) like if you thinking that i needed to understand and learn about uh from my own selfish perspective i guess and in in learning about it for myself um i you know, decided that I wanted to share it with other people. And it seemed like something, you know, really, really needed by the community. Um, so I just, I felt really passionate about it. And I just, I get these sparks and I just, you know, dove, dove in deeply. So for the past, I guess like, yeah, almost two years, I've been on this journey of figuring the book out and slowly, slowly but surely putting it together and doing the work behind the scenes to, to try to start to answer these questions or explore these questions and open other people's mind up to it. So. Um, and interestingly mm. enough, on this journey, um, I was actually coming back from Salem, doing a road trip out there, and I think it was early September. And on the way back, um, my so I've had two dads. I've had a stepdad. He died. He was terrible. And then I had another dad who was, was terrible. He was my biological dad. As I was writing this chapter on grief, um, he actually, I got a call while I was on this road trip coming back home from Salem that he died. So... I was in the process of writing this this chapter from kind of a clinical perspective because that's my background prior to Satan work is working in healthcare and working kind of as a patient advocate but also doing translational research and I was writing this thing from like a very clinical perspective and like looking at the research and then all of a sudden my dad dies like a couple weeks ago really and that just shifted like the focus of so much of the book for me so it's just this organic thing that keeps growing with what I'm experiencing at the moment and seeing other people deal with and uh Hmm. yeah it's been a journey but it's been really challenging and like really very intense and sad but it's also been I I don't know it's been very very much a healing experience for me to go through this and to understand and I think for Betty too she's writing a lot about her own experience you know in the medical the medical industry you know her experience as a biologist and understanding of human life from her experience you know trying to work with providers and trying to to you know, protect her body from, you know, the burdens that the healthcare system wants to put on it. So I think for both of us, it's been pretty cathartic and very reflective of our, our lived experience over the last year. So. Wow. So your your father just passed away then? 
He did, yeah. And so this mm. was, I just spoke about this at the estate, actually. Um, <laughs> that was a whole journey, too, because I was, like, rehearsing my presentation and crying during it and everything. But, yeah, that he was one of my abusers, so it was, we've been out of contact for a long time. And then he just, I unblocked his number because going through the doula program, one of the things they talk about a lot is forgiveness, which is something that I'm going to talk about a lot in the book about how I disagree with, like, you know, a lot of the common wisdom around that. And uh, But I was like, you know, people... We're reading all these books about the end of life and like how people reconnect and I'm like, you know, he's old. I don't know how much longer he's gonna be around. Maybe I'll try to reach out. Maybe I'll grown as if it's my problem, you know, not his being an asshole. And so he reached out to me around my birthday this year and basically told me I was crazy and asked for money and I was like, Nope, we blocked and then I got that call that he died and I had to decide I was the only remaining family, so I had to be the person that decided what happened to him and like what to do with his estate and everything. So that whole thing was very complicated for me and very 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 hard and uh yeah that was just within the last month like i had to go through all that process and you know as a doula as somebody who's a certified death doula now i'm like okay i should have these answers but you know going through it yourself it's a totally different experience and so i'm looking forward to like speaking on that a lot and also speaking specifically on these topics that are like kind of controversial and even in the death doula community people aren't talking about you know i think there's this idea that like you know death is beautiful and death is you know, people who are dying are precious and you should reconcile with people and, you know, there's like all this, I feel like moral, like a lot of moral projection that happens around death. And the truth is, though, you know, it's so open and it's, you know, if you're somebody that's having to deal with somebody who's been an abuser of yours um, or, you know, you have to be, you're asked to be involved in this process for them, like, my my answer continues to be that you don't have to actually be a part of the process. So I'm talking a lot in the book about, you know, how to deal with difficult deaths and like mm. rituals you can do to separate yourself. Um, you know, cause that's something I'm, I still have PTSD from his, my relationship with him and my other dad who died a couple of years ago. So it's just, it's a very complicated thing and grief's very complicated. And I, I found that out very, 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 very much in a personal way you know, a couple of weeks ago when he died and mm. figuring out how to navigate these situations is a lot, you know? Let's, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on forgiveness in the context of death, because, you know, mm-hmm. this, this is something that I, you know, probably like you, I was raised in kind of a culture of coercive forgiveness, like forgive or sure. else, you know, and it and it goes back to what Jesus said, and, you, and I forget which gospel this was, but where he says, you know, those who forgive will be forgiven by me. Um, mm-hmm. And so, which is kind of like a, a strong arming forgiveness, uh, like if, if, if we don't forgive those who, who hurt and abuse us, then God won't forgive us, and the end result of that, of course, is we go to hell. So, you know, that, right. <laughs> you know, coercive. Yeah, that's not the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to- it's, yeah, it's totally coercive, coercive forgiveness. What is your personal satanic perspective on forgiveness and death like how how do you navigate that and i don't and i don't even expect you to have like an answer to that like how but but how what has that journey been like for you yeah this is actually something i've been thinking about a lot just forgiveness in general as a concept i I created a card in the devil's deck about forgiveness which has been pretty popular with people but it's kind of turning the concept of forgiveness, traditional forgiveness, the kind of the course of forgiveness that you were talking about earlier on its head. So for me, it's something that I don't feel 
I guess, and I'm speaking for myself as like, you know, a 30-something-year-old person that hasn't it's lived life a certain way and had certain sort of experiences, but and probably my views will change on it in time. But for me, I think that just generally speaking, the forgiveness that I'm most interested in personally and as a Satanist is personal forgiveness. I'm interested in figuring out how I can, and from my lived experience, how I can bully myself less and how I can, you know, forgive myself for mistakes I've made. Because I also think that's part of like the reconciliation process. And I think that's part of you becoming, you growing as a person is to not be, to not be trapped in shame and guilt and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but from like an interpersonal perspective, I think that um, forgiveness isn't something that we have to, to necessarily focus on. Um, I think that for me, the, the way that I've been able to survive some of the abuse that had happened and even now, like the complicated relationships that I still have with people is through you know, kind of sticking to my guns, and I'm very, very, I have very, very strict now personal boundaries where I used to have none, and I, I don't allow people back in my life that have wronged me. I don't forget what people have done that's hurt me. Um, I, I, I actually hold those experiences very, very close to me, and, um, you know, per, perhaps like that's toxic sometimes, but I also feel like it's a way of protecting myself. I was literally laying in bed this morning thinking about these. Um, mm. I think it's a way of self-protection for me. And I think with death, um, I don't think forgiveness is necessary. There's, you know, a lot of, again, I have a, a limited lived experience. A lot of people who write about death talk about reconciliation as, you know, people come together at the end of life and how there's reconciliation, how there's this beautiful process where things can align and things just seem to clear up really easily. And I just haven't had that lived experience. And I don't think it should be, you know, that's something that we should be pushing on ourselves. And I think especially a lot because a lot of us have come from like very traumatic backgrounds and have had like really complicated relationships. I mean, every human has, but I think as a Satanist, you typically, the relationships you tend to have are a lot more adversarial <laughs> and or at least recognized as adversarial than what a lot of people have um, or like want to admit to themselves about. So for us, I think it's a, it's a, a special problem. Um, hmm. And I think that, I don't think that forgiveness is necessary. I think that for our own mental health, just, I think being able to refocus on ourselves and and heal i guess you could use the word heal or like grow personally is more important to, to me uh as a satanist and again like reconciling with outside people i think holding on to, to grudges and anger isn't necessarily healthy but it's part of the process of just being able to survive these things that have happened and, and learn um and i think from my personal perspective with my like my dad for instance and my stepdad like I never forgave them and I never will. And I, with my dad, even even with that whole thing, that was a huge mess that he left. He literally, I don't even, we can get to the details if you want to know, but like it was such a big mess and I just divested from him completely. I didn't, hmm. you know, there was no, and we hadn't spoken in a long time. I wasn't around when he was, he, he died suddenly. I wasn't around when that happened. But, you know, it's, I can try to understand where he was coming from maybe, but it's not, you know, I don't think, he ever asked for my forgiveness. He never wanted it. I don't particularly think it's important to think about that at this point. And I think ultimately as a Satanist, whatever makes you feel better, like whatever you can live with, whatever makes you feel better, whatever brings you some sort of peace is the answer. And I don't think that we should feel obligated to reconcile with people or forgive them yeah. or, or wrap things up in a, in a tidy bow once people die or are dying. 
Yeah, life isn't a Hallmark movie. I mean, there's (laughs) there's so much, I don't know, just so many thoughts and and emotions came up for me listening to you talk. So, you know, to kind of share some of my story, and this is something that I don't talk about very much publicly, but when I was 19 years old, I was in a shooting when I was when I was a missionary. And I mean, I was literally right there at a mass shooting. Two of my friends were killed right in front of me. And uh, and I saw it. You know, I was right there and the, the PTSD destroyed me. I remember the week it happened, the missionary community that I was part of all gathered in the hallway where my two friends were killed. And we were told, on the count of three, shout the words, I forgive you. Jeez. You know, and at the time, it felt kind of awesome and brazen. But looking back, I realized that's just not how grief works. Mm-hmm. The, the rage at the gunman needed to be worked through. And in a context like that, the word forgiveness, it's like I almost don't even know what what that word means. Oh, hold on. My cat is pushing the mic around. Um, It's like I don't even know what that word means. What does forgiveness even mean? Does it mean not holding the acts of someone against them? That doesn't quite feel right to me because it's like, no, people people have responsibility for their actions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to remove responsibility from anything, from, from anyone. On the other hand, does forgiveness mean not letting, you know, for forgetting the harm? you know, mm-hmm. for allowing that harm to be forgotten. I don't want to forget that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to forget the, the, the brutality because I feel like that would be disrespectful to my friends who died. I don't mm-hmm. want to forget their final moments. And then on the mm-hmm. other hand, is it not letting, not letting this event control my life? Mm-hmm that I'm more down with, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, absolutely. But but in a way, I just don't know what the word forgiveness even means. You bring up such a good point. Like, this is literally what I'm speaking today, too. I mean, I talk about it all the time, but it's such a weird concept. Yeah, and like, I think all everybody kind of understands it differently. But yeah, and, and having the church having you do say those things right after your friends were shot like what does that even mean? Like how can that how can the brain even process that? Like exactly. it's just absurd to me. Exactly. You know? And you know, I I can I can say, you know, I can try to practice compassion for the gunman while not accepting while still condemning what he did. You know. Mm-hmm. But that that yeah. that isn't something that I have to do and it isn't something that that happens immediately. But that to me is different from forgiveness. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I yeah, can, absolutely. I, and I can say, 
you know, I can try to understand his inner landscape. But understanding isn't forgiving. Understanding mm-hmm. isn't condoning. Like, I can try mm-hmm. to understand. I can even maybe try to have compassion on parts of his life without condoning or accepting or any of those things. And so what I'm—and I can— come to live my life where that trauma no longer shapes me, no longer is a shadow over my life, and I can just move on and live a full life, which I feel like I have. But even that mm-hmm. is, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, I don't, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> like, none of those things nece- necessarily strike me as forgiveness. Yeah, I'm like, what is that even supposed to mean in that, the Christian context too? Like, I forgive you, you know, like, and, and that's what you're describing. It's like, it, to me, it's almost like a, saying it's okay. And I guess here too, I mean, what we happen all the time is that people are a lot back or, you know, things are covered up. Um, that's like another big part of my story in the church, like things being covered up, like wrongs being covered up. Oh, yeah. People, just this idea of forgiveness, which is just, instead of it being something that's like, I don't know, practical or helpful it just becomes an excuse that's used to let bad behavior continue and to hide the sins of yeah. the clergy or whatever it is and it, to me and forgiveness too is something that was wielded a lot by my mom and she, you know it's still something we have issues uh, still to this day but you know she would always say you know just i i'm and i'm you know, she's like i'm forgiving myself for what happened and i I forgive, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you should just forgive. And to me, that whole thing is, it's all about forgiving and forgetting. And it's its about, it just, I don't know, it seems kind of weak. And it seems it seems like it's a way to re-victimize myself a lot of times. I think your context is similar but quite different, you know, from a lot of my personal experience. But to me, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's just the whole concept's absurd. And the fact that we're continuously talk, talked at, to forgive, whether it's in the Christian context or I think culturally in general. And, and if we're looking into like spiritual movements or, you know, self-help, it's like there's such an overabundance of people telling you that that's something that you have to focus your energy on. And I just, it's like, what does even, like you said, what does it even mean? And how is this ho- actually helping me at all? Like, yeah, it like, takes time to grieve. <laughs> like, what about, to look this stuff. what about, say, post, one of my favorite phrases lately has been post-traumatic growth. Like, mm-hmm. like, what about so that's good? What about that? Like, what about saying, you know, r- putting the emphasis on no, I'm going to be as totally authentic in this grief and rage as I possibly can be? What about mm-hmm. that? What if the what if the mm-hmm. emphasis was on that? I mean, of course, gently, you know, some of us, you know, some of us need to go up the mountain and not look at that grief for a while because it might be too overwhelming, and that's. That's also part of the process, right? But but yeah. what if instead of forgiveness, what if we were to reframe it as no, let's 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 embrace to within reason the the fullness of the grief and rage and all of the feelings that come with that. Let's just feel mm-hmm. them. Like, what if what if that were to be the case instead of let's forgive and put this all away? Yeah, you know, I feel like that would be so much more helpful. And and so, talk some about the role of ritual in this process. How does how does ritual play a role here? Yeah, I mean, 
I guess with forgiveness or grief specifically, um, for me, it's played a big role in helping me disconnect. I think one of the things, I think I've been thinking about this a lot, but I think one of the ways that we harm ourselves most is, and I can see I can see the wisdom and forgiveness, quote unquote, in certain ways. Oh yeah, so this idea of, of disconnecting from people or experiences that were harmful, that aspect of uh, forgiveness, which you know is very broad, I can agree with. And I think that's where ritual comes in for me. I think the way that we end up, the way that I end up hurting myself a lot is holding on, like replaying old things in my mind, old situations, old abuses, getting really angry. And there's nothing wrong with getting angry, I think. Whether or not you want to work through it, that, that's all up to you. And I think anger can be a very transformative, powerful tool that's in our toolbox. But um, so for me, ritual, ritual can be a way to channel anger. It can be a way to help me process relationships and separate from um, you know, things that I want to separate from. It can be a way for me to uh, process grief. That's a huge one. So a couple of the rituals in the book are specifically about, you know, processing grief after uh, sort of like a complicated death, like the one I was describing with my dad, you know, like after he dies, just like, you know, taking think of him and his legacy and, and the fact that he's actually dead, which is like really difficult to process to me. Even, I guess in the context of people who were uh, my abusers, it's like, even though they're dead, you know, those memories and, like, the pain and everything still continues. I still have bad dreams and PTSD, you know, symptoms from things that happened by people who are now dead. So it's like, how do I work through those sort of of, um, aspects of my life? And so ritual comes in and and can help with that. Um, So that's been, that's been huge for me. And that's, I think that's really helped me, you know, whether I'm going through, and I'm going to be talking about this next month too, I'm going to release one of the rituals that I have uh, in the book, Burn, but just one of the most effective rituals for me in dealing with my dad or my stepdad has been to just like, you know, write down the aspects of things that they said to me that were cruel, things that keep on popping up in my head, because I feel like their voices are still there sometimes, Um, things that I, that, you know, me think about myself that I don't think are true or were hurtful just like writing all those things down and like taking an evening to just like think about them a lot and like get really upset about it and angry and then just burn it and that to me doing those sort of things have really helped me work through anger and grief and all the complicated feelings that I have around those people um Mm. but yeah I mean that's going to be one focus of the, the rituals in the book and the other is just of course you know rituals for remembering people that were dear to you, rituals, you know, how to, to put your own funeral together, how to do it for other people, like doing all these other ceremonial things that we uh, typically do when people die. So just leaving a lot of options and examples for, you know, what you can do um, mm. if you want to engage in ceremony or ritual. You know, it's almost like these, you know, thinking of just traumatic experiences or or heartbreaking experiences. Those are full-bodied experiences. I mean, even even mm-hmm. like a breakup. I mean, it feels like your whole body is broken. If, oh, yeah. You know, the heartbreak, it, it really feels like you were broken. And then it's all, but then it's like, so is ritual. Ritual can be mm-hmm. a full-body experience. And I don't know, there's almost a sense of counteracting one full-body experience with another. Or, mm-hmm. or something. It's, and you know, I don't want to get, you know, there, I feel like there's a lot of pseudoscience around 
stuff like, you know, the body holding on to trauma and all that kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily want to go there, but there is real power in in engaging the full body in a healing practice, like a ritual, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was so, you know, coming for me as a person who's writing this book, right, right when my dad died, and again, like, I just, like, wrote down all the different symptoms that had happened. And for, like, two or three days after he died, I felt like I was a gaping wound, like, physically. Mm. And I also realized that what I was feeling was very familiar. And I thought about it, and I realized that I'd really been grieving, doing this really heavy grieving around my dad, you know, around the time I became a Satanist and decided to separate and become estranged from him. So I was I was having these, you know, my stomach was hurting constantly. I was having these feelings of, like, extreme weakness, um, just crying all the time, flashbacks, like, all that stuff was happening at that moment after he died for days. And that had also been going on for, like, probably a year or so after once I decided to separate from him and actually process what was going on. So, yeah, I mean, your body, there, there's no doubt that your body, your mind and body emotions are all connected together, and there's a real physical um, aspect to everything that we experience emotionally and uh, psychologically. And mm. I definitely think that, for me, ritual is most effective when I'm able to engage my senses and to be physically active. And um, that's why I think starting out, you know, putting together elaborate rituals and becoming really physically engaged and sensually engaged in the process can really help kind of re- reprogram your brain, which is basically what I, I guess I would short say ritual does, is it, it's helping you reprogram your thought process and uh, reconnect some wires connected and put you in a different mind frame uh, in when you're approaching reality and your human experience. So. Mm. This is going to be a really, really, really weird question and might seem completely out of the blue. Um, I have been fascinated by the research into psychedelics as a tool for mm-hmm. end-of-life therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the, the research like out of John Hopkins is, has just been so incredibly powerful. Um, where psychedelics being used um, in the context of like depression, grief, intense anxiety, trauma, and then end of life. And just the results have been stunning. And uh, for mm-hmm. for anyone listening who's curious about this, go read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Have you considered, and this is a touchy question because, you know, the, you know, it, but have you, con- have you thought any about the integration of psychedelics into satanic ritual is that something that your mind has has ever gone towards and if so what the ethics of that would be like I, i don't know is is that just it's something that i've been thinking about and so I, I guess I just kind of like want to open a door to that discussion. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I get asked about this a lot, actually. And I okay. always, I always am kind of, I try to publicly be pretty nasty to it. Because oh, oh say that, that say that one more time. <laughs> oh, I try to be kind of, you know, I don't talk about it a lot because there are, you know, legal, there's still legal ramifications for Absolutely. You know, psychedelic use and that sort of thing. But in the religious context... I mean, I think it could be powerful. I think it could be dangerous, too. I think that one of the things that I say when people start doing ritual, 
um, and I've said this in a couple of my presentations before, is that I think the ritual is best practice when you have somebody like a sort of therapeutic guide for you, like a therapist or somebody you're working with uh, already, if you are going to be engaging in deep ritual. And I would think the same thing if people are going to be, if people would be engaging in psychedelics. I think, I don't know, I don't, I think on a personal level, like a, I think that that makes, I think it makes sense for people to experiment. I definitely think I, I've, you know, read a lot of that research uh, and I've had lived experience that reflects that I think you can have very powerful experiences with those sort of, um, those sort of tools at your side, but I do think there can be, I think it could be something potentially dangerous at like a, a maybe a community level, not a community level, but like in a group setting, you know what I mean? Or Absolutely. I think maybe in, in a personal religious practice that could make sense. And if you're with people who are experienced and, you know, you, you have good relationships with, in a therapeutic setting, I think you could integrate all those things. Um, if you're in a state or, or a, working with some people in a therapeutic setting, where those could be integrated, but I know a lot of people who've gotten into ritual who have sort of lost their minds in the process, um, mm. and I think a lot of them have also, that is also usually connected with heavy drug use, so yeah. I'm always a bit scared about that, but I do think there's promise in, you know, responsibly integrating that sort of, like, psychedelics or other substances into, into ritual practice. I mean, it's been done for, you know, millennia at this point, um, mm. And I think to profound effect, but I think it's something, you know, hopefully something down the line we could talk about more, but I think just going in with care is important. I think for me personally too, I had, you know, experiences with psychedelics that have helped me, I think really early on in my journey, actually, even before I became a Satanist, that really opened up my mind and like made me think about my life differently and the world differently and provided to be a very important healing catalyst. But um, once I, once I actually started being more serious about my ritual practice, I stopped. I stopped engaging with it I, because that ritual actually took the the space, took up the space, and like gave me the insights that psychedelics had previously given. So for me personally, mm. I don't do that anymore. And I don't know. It, it's probably a personal experience, uh, more of a personal sort of story. But I I feel better about just kind of engaging ritual, uh, and and that really. You 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 feel better about before. you feel better about engaging ritual. Say that one more time. Oh yeah, engaging in ritual without the aid of psychedelic. Personally, at, at this point, and that's something it's something too that for me, I guess ritual is almost taking a place of where psychedelics used to be the thing that I did to like get to a certain place mentally and like work through things. Hmm. This, to me now, is the the process ritual serves. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting, but I just I always just get nervous. You know, people come up to me. I've been at events before, and people come up and ask about it, and I just I'm always just wary. Um, yeah. You know, I I think that you have to be careful with all that stuff. You know, I I feel really similarly, and part of the reason why I bring up the question is because one of my favorite writers, Michael Pollan, who's been writing quite a bit about psychedelics lately. He says that the federal government is is starting to take more of a hands-off approach with the war on drugs because it's been such a catastrophic failure. And so they're just taking yeah. they're they're just taking their hands off with and what that means is that psychedelics are coming to our culture in a in a in a big way down down the line. And I think that's accurate. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. 
And fingers crossed. And so, you know, psychedelics are coming like that, that, you know, magical freight train is is going to hit us. And it's worth kind of thinking preemptively about the integration about the about how we're going to approach psychedelics. Because I mm-hmm. can't imagine that it isn't going to happen to some degree within the satanic community. <laughs> like it's going, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like it's, and sure. so, but I, it, but I also totally share your instincts. Like on the one hand, it's incredibly powerful, can be incredibly powerful for like grief and end of life stuff and so on. My personal. I feel like my personal mental makeup is such that I'm so f- wellness is such a fragile state for me mm-hmm. and, and being well <laughs> mentally is such a fragile state for me that I'm so cautious about anything that might disrupt that. Um, and so psychedelics personally, like completely terrify me <laughs> and, and I'm, and, and so it sounds like, meditation is for me what ritual is for you and in that it kind of does that does for me what what psychedelics i guess could do um yeah 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 i I would say yeah probably we're in a similar place and the same thing with this idea i think i when i was engaging you know when the idea was more appealing to me was during a time where i was really looking for answers and yeah um and i do think that it's something that we should explore religiously when I think about the way most people I guess because of the war on drugs and because of the taboo nature and the cultural nature of psychedelics in the United States uh, from that perspective a lot of times when people engage it's from a recreational point of view and it's not you know it's not very controlled and it's Mm -hmm. kind of a roller coaster of things so I think if we were to engage it I think if, if institutionally as the temple or whatever groups of Satanists or ministers or whatever it is started to think about these questions you know the way that people have formally it seems to me integrated those things into religious practices through um, through formal structures and there's like guides and there's yeah. there's you know rituals that have been like set in stone for hundreds of thousands of years that are done with it and yeah. I think that's the sort of thing that maybe from an institutional perspective we could start thinking about but there's yeah there's a lot that has to happen i feel like there's a lot of we're still learning so much i'll have to check out that book i hadn't uh i hadn't yeah. uh, read it but i i had seen a lot of the research because it was always an interest of mine in healthcare healthcare field um but, you know there's just a lot of i think there's a lot of good that could come from it but it just ha- we have to figure out how we would you know integrate that into everything else yes absolutely and i and i don't even you know bring up this question saying that we should, but, <laughs> but, you know, just that it's worth thinking about, like it, it's yeah. worth, it's worth contemplating because I can't imagine that psychedelics aren't going to start being integrated into ritual either within the satanic community or just more broadly in, in our, in our culture, right? Like it, it's yeah. coming, it's going to come. And it's, and I mean, I figure like you're as, you're maybe the best person I know of to ask, you know, to bring this topic up with since, yeah. since you're uh, kind of an expert in ritual. So I hope that that question doesn't seem like too weird or out of left field. Oh but. no, I think it's like, it's very, very natural. And I think, it, you know, I, I just haven't thought about it in a long time. So you, you bring something good to, to my mind now to like look into more and think about, 
Um, hmm. Yeah, because it can be, I mean, these things have been used forever throughout human history to, like, create breakthroughs and help people heal. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how hopefully things are decriminalized and and what the research is telling us and how people can integrate it in a way that's, you know, powerful and useful for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, one of the points that Michael Pollan makes, he has a new book out called uh, This Is Your Mind on Plants, where he covers, he talks about our interaction with four plants, the poppy, caffeine, ayahuasca, no, not ayahuasca, mescaline, and, oh, what was the other one? I can't remember. Um, Let's see, coffee, uh, mescaline, poppy and i can't i can't remember the other one but um one of the one of the things that he points out is that in the native indigenous cultures that do a ritual with these plants is that they are very conservative and and like mm-hmm. the culture surrounding them is very conservative and very structured and very like mm-hmm. old fashioned and very rigid and part of the mm-hmm. purpose for that is because these these plants can just unleash Dionysian powers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know can just unleash yeah. you know Dionysian forces in a community if it doesn't take place within a structure and he points out and and yeah. Michael Pollan kind of makes a comparison. I think he did this in an interview. He kind of makes a comparison to alcohol in our culture mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, we, we have these cultural norms and rituals surrounding alcohol. We don't think of them that mm-hmm. way, but that's what it is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have a designated driver. That's a ritual. <laughs> you, you have a, you have, you bring along a designated driver. You, you don't, uh, you know, you, you drink with friends, um, preferably not, you don't drink heavily alone. Um, when you do, we know that that's, you know, when we're more vulnerable. So, you know, there's like, there are like these rituals and customs surrounding alcohol to make this really powerful, powerful drug safer for society, right? And, and beneficial for society. And he says, we're going to have to develop similar norms and rituals for psychedelics. So it, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to think about within the context of, of religion. And I think it's yeah, an, it's yeah. going to be a natural fit. I think it's going to be a natural uh, thing to think about within the satanic community <laughs> because satanists are, you know, generally more open and freaky than than others. Um, yeah, it'll be exciting to see how Christians integrate it into their own. <laughs> oh, totally, as well. <laughs> absolutely. Um, when is your book coming out? Or, or tell us some about about how people yeah. can support your project and and where they can find that. Yeah, I've, uh, I've just released an Indiegogo campaign um, for the book. So we've hit our funding goal, which is amazing. And I'm doing a limited edition uh, leather and paperback printing of each of the books. They're limited to 111 copies each. And uh, that, that campaign is going to be running through November 1st. So um, if you go on my website, serpentina.com, or if you go on... Um, Indiegogo and search The Devil's Death, that that will come up and you can purchase one of those books. Um, the books aren't actually going to be released until May. I'm, assume, I'm thinking May or April of next year, so um, I just want to build in. The supply chains are insane right now, so I'm trying to build in some time for everything to work itself out. Um, but yeah, so we're looking at a spring release and 
I'll be doing a book release party at the headquarters at TST and and in some other places around the country, which is assuming COVID is not as terrible as it has been, um, hopefully finally happen. I've I've really been a hermit for the last year, so I anticipate finally getting out into the world and being able to celebrate the books and all these other projects uh, next year. And yeah, so so it's on. Uh, so you can purchase it if you're interested on uh, through Indiegogo or my website. And yeah, I'm super excited. I'm finishing up writing it right now. I'm um, we're getting towards the end. Um, so I'm I've taken a little break since my dad died just to try to process things before I get into another heavy writing session. But um, just putting all the pieces together now and. So, yeah, I'm super excited. The ritual portion of the book is going to be one of the biggest um, aspects of it. Um, but we're also going to be doing things uh, around how you can, you know, come up with your own end-of-life plan, the sort of, like, legal and practical steps you can take to ensure that, you know, whatever you want to have happen after you die does end up happening, how to navigate the healthcare system, um, just basic practical tools for working with uh, if you are at the end of life or helping somebody who is things to think about and keep in mind when you're navigating the funeral industry, the healthcare industry, um, understanding what options you have at the end of life and you know what can actually be done with your body. Um, going back to what I was talking about earlier, preparing advanced directives, um, you know, and ultimately, you know, how to deal with grief, how to process death how to create these rituals, rituals that you can use, how to support, you know, people that you loved ones during that time, um, practical guidance on, like, what's helpful and what's not helpful, and, uh, you know, how to think about building a support network around you when you're grieving, all sorts of things. So it's, it's got a lot going on, but I'm hoping it'll open up the gateway for a lot of important conversations within our community and hopefully with uh, outside of our community, too. Um, I think it's, it's going to be pretty unique. Um, and hopefully a useful resource for folks. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always... Hail Satan, and thanks for listening.